you could have sewn for 20 years and you will be very frustrated with underwear. Um, so the crossover is quite a, quite a challenge. Um, and getting a factory up and going to, to do lingerie is obviously um, quite, um, quite a conversion, different machinery, different skills, um, different processes, that kind of thing. It's amazing how word of mouth mm. spreads. Mm-hmm. Um, I think particularly for sewing nowadays, because it's not a not a skill that a lot of like people have so much anymore. When you know somebody that does it, you're quite happy to then share that information with anybody else that's looking. Obviously, it's always a question I ask, and we do go into it quite heavily because it then um, it then translates into what kind of features the underwear needs, um, or the gown, or the, even the bridal gown needs. You know, things like if you're creating a niche garment, that why will talk to the sizes that you need to run or how many products you need to run. So it is a very vital part. And it also means that when we have difficult decisions or decisions that need to be made and they're sort of toing and froing as to which one to make, I'll always say to them, remember why you are doing this. If that is not fitting, you know, if the decision you're going to make is not in line with that, then you're starting to blur the lines of your your product and the reason and that kind of thing. Hello, welcome to Underdressed, the podcast where we talk about the clothes under our clothes and exactly how they get made. My name is Trudy Gardner. I'm the freelance designer behind Wayfinder Laundry. In this show, I'll be exploring the art, practice, and technical execution of intimate apparel. We'll be taking a behind-the-scenes look at this industry and trying to understand exactly how designers balance creativity with functionality, specifically as it pertains to our hardworking yet delicate base layers. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I have a really fun episode with Natalie Graham, who's an experienced lingerie and corset pattern maker and designer with a whole depth of experience in the industry. And I hope you enjoy listening to it. As always, I really enjoyed being able to record it. Um, I have a few things to let you know about, a few fun projects on the go. This year, I'm super excited to announce that I will be teaching a class at the Bra Sewing Bee. And if you haven't heard of it before, the Bra Sewing Bee is sort of like an online convention where a whole bunch of experienced bra makers from all around the world come together and share their skills and they look at different types of garments and different types of patterns and it's a whole lot of fun. So my class obviously is going to be looking at using 3D design for intimate apparel and um, it's a little bit different because what I do is take three patterns from the um, their independent they're independently published patterns and I bring them to Clothe3D and then we have a look at the different shapes that you can expect from the 2D pattern. So when we take the 2D pattern and we look at it in 3D, the different kind of cup shapes that the pattern expects. And then I also um, spend a little bit of time showing you how to make manipulations to those patterns um, in 3D, which is, spoiler alert, exactly the same as you would do it on paper by hand, but 
um, we'll be looking at how we do it on the computer and the advantages of using 3D to look at pattern manipulations. Um, sorry if there's a lot of noise in the background. They're the family's home today and this is the best I can do for you, um, but I think you'll still enjoy the episode. So thanks for being here. As always, all links for things that I'll be talking about will be down in the show notes and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I have Natalie on the podcast today. Natalie and I connected over Instagram because you found my podcast somehow through the massive interwebs. And, you know, we talk about underwear and you make underwear. So <laughs> I and then you shared a little bit of your story with me. And I thought it would be really interesting <laughs> to share with the rest of the podcast audience. So thank you and welcome and welcome. And thank you for being here. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> Okay, Natalie, can you tell us a little bit about um, what you do, what you do in the industry and, um, you know, how you learn the skills that you have? Sure, no problem. Um, so I am a, a freelance lingerie and bridal um, pattern maker as well as a technical designer. Um, and I actually connected with you originally through the Intimate Apparel uh, Technical Collective. That's kind of how where I saw your name and then obviously algorithms chat to each other and then and then your podcast popped up and I've been listening to it so it's really um really lovely to be on it so thank you for inviting me um of course, of uh, course. Can... I'm super excited to have you <laughs> so I currently live in Auckland New Zealand um so we are literally a day apart <laughs> chatting here <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah I'm ready I'm getting ready for bed and you just you just started your day <laughs> yep <laughs> shipped the kids off to school and now starting a work day yeah um so I'm originally from South Africa. Uh, we immigrated to New Zealand five and a half years ago. <clears throat> In South Africa, I um, before we left, I was doing bridal and evening gown um, stuff and not much lingerie just because of, well, I was freelancing actually um, to, some, to a factory that was making um, underwear for Triumph. Um, so I used to go into the factory and help them set up machinery and train seamstresses. Um, because the seamstresses, they'd um, although they'd done a lot of sewing, they'd never done lingerie before. Um, and anybody that's sewn a bit of lingerie really is just a it's its own thing, right? Like, yeah, yeah. You 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 could have sewn for twenty years, and you will be very frustrated with underwear. Um, so the crossover is quite a quite a challenge. Um, and getting a factory up and going to to do lingerie is obviously um quite um quite a conversion, different machinery different skills, um, different processes, that kind of stuff. So you um, assisted the factory in the in the whole process of get like making lingerie. So did you have to you you showed them how to like use the machines and the whole process they doing, of they were doing a little like underwear and they were sort of branching out more into um bras. So they had some experience. Um and we were just so I helped I was kind of the link between the pattern maker and then so I helped get samples out so I was actually on the floor getting samples out between myself and the seamstresses and then those samples would then go to clients for fits and what have you to approve that so that they could actually then go to manufacture and then okay. if they had problems on the floor if they weren't getting fast enough with the with the current stuff on the floor I would help them you know try and improve you, know, you often need a lot of folders and binders and things to make bras and underwear just to make it faster I mean there's you can always do it but instead of doing it in perhaps two steps you can 
have a binder or a folder that they're oh okay you're talking about I was <laughs> in my mind I was like binders and folders I was like are you using these organized <laughs> patterns like no you're talking about like parts that you add to the machines to make things yes. like to, to do yes. the finishing like a fold over elastic like yeah, in one yeah. step rather than two yeah. passes or something like that okay yeah all right so it's it's been quite interesting because I'm kind of at the moment sitting in between kind of factory and home sewing so um, I obviously don't have all the machinery at home when I make samples for my clients. Um, but it's nice to know the manufacturing side of things that I can use the correct substitute methods for the samples that I make, which is um, which is always quite fun. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, in South Africa, I worked for a company called DB Apparel. They were eventually taken over by Haynes, which I know um, Haynes is quite well known in the industry. Um, and we used to manufacture and distribute uh, Wonderbra and Playtex, as well as uh, Shock Absorber. Now, uh, the menswear was bare. And then we used to do a lot of private, uh, private label. So for other stores, they would have their own brand as well. Um, so I, I started out as a just a junior assistant there, and then I went ended up as a senior designer for Playtex and then for Wonderbra, and then I left left to go and have children and open my own business. And cool. then yeah, so when we moved here to New Zealand, it's taken me a while to get back up and running, and uh, so yeah, so I just started with alterations here. And then eventually got into making stuff, and now I've really sort of branched out into the lingerie side of things and the and the bridal side of things. So. Okay, super interesting. So, um, <laughs> how did you cats. get started? So, how did you get started? Was it um was it with the company DB Apparel? Um, was that like one of your first jobs in the industry? Um, it was one of the first. It was like what I was going for uh, when I went to study at the university. Um, I was one of the few that went in with the knowledge that I wanted to niche, go into a very niche industry, which was um, lingerie or underwear. And so it was my second job out of university. Okay. Yeah, it was like, a, like that's where I wanted to be. So when okay. I went to another job, I was, I was really, really thrilled. <laughs> yeah, that's super cool. Um, So did you... um. Did you, I, I've been asking this because just out of pure curiosity, um, did you feel like university prepped you for a job in the industry? Yeah, I, I loved university. I went, I went to university as an older student. I did some, um, some gap years <laughs> um, between finishing school and going to university. So by the time I went, I was, I was a bit mature. So I took it a bit more seriously and didn't do too much partying and that kind of stuff. So I really loved it. I loved every aspect of it. Um, and the one that like really spoke to me was pattern making. To me, it just, it was a really nice blend of uh, the creative. I've always been creative, but kind of probably not um, confident enough to go into like fine arts or anything like that. Um, whereas the patterns I find is a really nice balance of the creative and the logical um, and just that turning a, a completely, you know, 1d thing or a 2d thing into now a 3d garment is just yeah. is, is always like from the minute i started patterns i was like oh this is i just love this me too <laughs> same it's this puzzle that you got to figure out like how this this thing comes together to fit onto like a 3d form and 
I'm not going to start talking about 3D yet. We'll get there. <laughs> but um, yeah, the, the, the fact that you're taking this thing on paper and you got to like imagine how it's going yeah. to fit onto a, a real human body. I, I think that's super cool. Um, so, so I asked if you felt like it prepped you for um, getting into, so, I mean, I think, I think, I think it might be the wrong question when, when I'm asking this, because there's so many other benefits that it sounds like, I, I mean, I went to university, but I did yeah. English literature and it prepped me for nothing. <laughs> like, <laughs> it didn't really, you know, get me like, I, I wasn't interested in like writings per se necessarily professionally, but um, it did prep me to be an adult in the world and like organize yeah. myself to get projects done, you know? Um, so, so did you feel like it prepped you to get you into the industry? Yeah, I think it teaches you how to think, not necessarily what to think. Yeah. Um, I mean, mine was, it was a fashion design course. So it was obviously heavily focused on all the aspects. They did, I found that they did cover all the aspects of the industry, you know, but, you know, um, after university, if you want to go and launch your own business, you know, being a business is <laughs> something totally they can't really thing. teach. It's like, here's the basics and and off you go. You got to, you got to learn by discovering it. Yeah. And I think it's the same with every other area of they can only teach you so much in patterns. You've got to be able to kind of figure your way around it and logic your way around it. So, yes, they did prep you in that way, but they can't possibly prep you for absolutely every minute thing that you're going to come across later. Um, being in such a wanting to go in such a niche area, I obviously didn't. Um, they didn't. They literally covered underwear um, in probably couple of weeks out yeah. of a three-year yeah. <laughs> diploma so yeah. for me like when I had did my final collection so I was the first one at the university to ever do a uh, lingerie based final collection mm-hmm. um, and so I it was all completely self-taught yeah. I took garments apart pulled patterns from it manipulated it looked at construction um, I'd actually gone to a really random bra making course like at one of the one of the fabric shops somewhere along the way. Okay. Um, and I'd actually taken one of my university lecturers who was teaching us sewing it because she'd never sewn a bra. So the two of us went off together and then uh, for my final collection, <laughs> we kind of worked together to try and figure it all out. Um, so being particularly niche, they didn't cover much. But once again, once you've, you know, once you're in patterns and you're working in a three-dimensional form and you can visualize how it goes on the body and, fitting issues and that kind of thing it does translate Mm. yeah Yeah, I have such a similar experience I did I did a two a two-year diploma like after after I left the military and uh it was the same thing it was like there was like there was probably two classes out of like the two-year diploma that we did we did I I think it was a swimsuit and I did my final collection all in lingerie and it was was the same thing it was all just self-taught just like I just learned there's you know scoured the internet for information any information that I could find and took apart I'm trying to think um what my my final collection was 2007 there wasn't um wasn't much on the internet in those days so Yeah, I just recorded a podcast this week about somebody who um, is her name's Kristen Anderson, and that podcast will be coming oh, out yep. in a couple of weeks, but it'll, it'll be out before this one. So um, she said 
she started freelancing around that time. Like her first go at it was around that time. And she said it was just like completely different trying to freelance then and trying to freelance now, like completely yeah. different landscape. Yeah. Oh, no, definitely. I mean, the, the information that's available on the internet and the way you can connect with people now totally changes the game and the industry as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Connections like a podcast where we can like <laughs> meet on the internet <laughs> and have a beautiful conversation. It's really Yeah, cool. definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So, so you got your first job at DB Apparel and, and that's where you really like cut your teeth in, in learning how the industry works and, and how pattern making for intimate apparel works. Yeah, definitely for, for intimate apparel. So um, as a junior designer, um, my job was really just to assist the um, the design manager pretty much in anything she wanted. Um, I ended up doing quite a lot of um, print development, weirdly enough. Um, I had really good Photoshop skills when I arrived there. One of my previous jobs before I'd gone to study, I actually made um, orthophotographic maps. Well, no, I didn't oh, make cool. them. I helped edit the final product okay. and that was just hours and hours in photoshop checking that all the photos blended together really nicely so like in this picture the tree was that way and in the next picture the other way you know so like you had to go in and fix all of that imagery so i'd had Sounds really good tedious. experience on, <laughs> on photoshop yeah. and so when i arrived i just happened to show you know like obviously my skills they said oh well <laughs> can you develop some prints and stuff right so that was really interesting learning um obviously like I'd learned a little bit in university but now doing it for underwear and and that kind of stuff was really interesting and just really helping so making getting some first samples made we had a we, we had a sample room which was really nice I mean it was just such a luxury to have a have a sample room that you can work into and walk into and just get people to make you a sample. That's super cool, um, yeah. Yeah, so because because the company had been running for so many years, uh, there was always base styles that you could base something off. So um, we ran a lot of base styles, so I would either just color them up into different colors or put a print on them or whatever. And then if you if they wanted some kind of new range, you already had existing fitting products that you could use as a first pattern and then just manipulate it to add lace or, you know, change the fabric around or that, that kind of thing. So it was, it was really nice that I got to work with existing patterns and learn about, you know, where grain lines should go and, okay, now you want to change the fabric. Okay, this is how it affects it. So it was a really nice way to get into learning without being so overwhelmed with, like, pattern drafting um and grading and those kinds of things um so yeah because yeah, you were starting it's, it's so much nicer to start with a pattern that you know already works and manipulate yeah. it into something else that it has yeah. a much better chance of working than starting with like your block which you don't know if it works or not <laughs> yet and so you have to perfect that and it's so much longer of a journey to get from that to your final yeah design yeah I you mean, have in your head I mean I have a look at the the pattern drafting that they have in the books and <laughs> so far from the underwear we use nowadays it's like it's almost like it's it's kind of helpful but you certainly wouldn't be wearing <laughs> wearing that garment uh, first off that's for sure yeah um yeah and then I eventually worked my way up and I became a senior designer for Playtex um for South Africa and they distributed throughout some um some other African countries as well and yeah, and just and then I made new styles, 
we worked a lot with um, marketing, which was quite nice, so that you learned, you know, all about who it's going to go to, who they're selling it to, who they're targeting it to, um, kind of the way retail works, and um, all the departments worked really well together. So I got to know quite a bit about how the all the you know buying and the marketing and all those come together um, to then get a product onto the floor that somebody can buy. Okay. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Um, the process. So you, you were learning about all of these um, processes. So were, was the customer just in South Africa or were you guys distributing to a broader geographical area? Um, it was mainly South Africa. Okay. Did, and they were um, produced in South Africa? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, which um, we we had the I think I think the the statistic we had the largest underwear manufacturer in the southern hemisphere at one stage. Um, the South African market is quite big because the population is is quite big, and um, we did do we did send to other countries, but I can't can't remember which ones exactly. I wasn't really involved in that side of the in that in that side of business. But yeah, it was mainly South Africa. Okay, because was, like. I mean, in my ignorance, I thought a lot of manufacturing happened overseas nowadays, like especially for large companies like Hanes. Um, so is that common where like they they would have like smaller local? Um, like I know you said South Africa's large, but I, I don't think like in Canada we have, a, you know, like a Hanes manufacturing. It would be too yeah. expensive, like the labor would be too expensive and we wouldn't be competitive. So um, so my question is, like, is that is that typical where Haynes has like many smaller um, producers um, around the world or? I, I can't speak to that um, for two reasons. Um, first of all, Haynes brought um, Haynes took over from DB Apparel just after I left. So I wasn't okay. really involved oh, okay. with the Yeah, okay. So um, maybe things have shifted since then. Yeah, they um the actually the factory has now actually cl um closed down about a year or 18 months ago, which was really sad. It was I mean that factory had been going for like 50 odd years. Mm. Um and yeah, just the price what happened um so uh, if you know anything about South Africa, South Africa had sanctions against it in the in the early years due to their political views mm. and so what happened when those sanctions were put on them they had to become very self-sufficient okay so sanctions so, against outsourcing uh no just a, well yeah just again so it just meant that south africa couldn't do business with a lot of places in the world and they had to be able to do it themselves oh so, okay so sanctions of, against south africa okay sorry yeah again. so a lot of industries grew very south african based because they they couldn't import the product or people couldn't sell to them or whatever like that. So they became very okay. self-sufficient. Okay. Um, and as a result, we had a lot of fabric mills, a lot of production um, places and what have you. Oh, okay. What happened is as, as those sanctions were dropped against South Africa, they started being able to then do business with other countries. Um, and so because the manufacturing was already happening in South Africa and labor was relatively cheap, they kept going. What happened is um, products that we couldn't make locally due to lack of skills or machinery or whatever, they would outsource. So we used to bring in all um, all our um, foam molded bras 
And then eventually we just used to buy the cups and manufacture the foam molded bras in South Africa. And eventually, just before I left, they'd actually bought foam molding machines so that they could do the whole process themselves. Mm. Um, seamless underwear and bras, we couldn't do. We didn't have that machinery. So they used to they used to import that. Okay. And just what what started happening is, um, I mean, I wasn't there when it all shut down, but I'm just assuming that just labor costs got too high, import duties got too high, and just yeah, a like of what what things. yeah, like typically what happens, what's been happening when economies yeah, so, around the world. But yeah, so it was quite sad. I mean, it was really sad that factory's been there for so many years, and there's so many jobs lost. I mean, I'm just trying to think. But we had at least about 1,500 people on site. So I could walk out of the design room onto the manufacturing floor and see 1,200 people yeah. manufacturing many lines of yeah. – um, it was really awesome. Like it was yeah. it was a really well-rounded um, – you know, you got to see all the different parts of the industry, which I know mm-hmm. not everybody has the opportunity to see. So it was really lovely. Like, I loved my time. Oh, that's super cool. And, um, okay, so two things I want to ask about. I want to get back to the sample room. And I want to ask about, um, so the conditions there, it seems like like a lot of people think factories, (laughs) clothing factories um, are, in a lot of places in the world, have, like, poor working conditions. And But your experience at this one, it was, like, a healthy working environment. I think it was pretty healthy. I mean, it's it's factory, so it's long hours. Long hours, um, yeah. But um, but they really did, um, you know, they had, uh, you know, they had beautiful lunch rooms, and um, it it seemed all well to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I obviously wasn't working on the factory floor. I don't know what their wages were or anything yeah. like that. Mm. Um, but they were really a company that looked after their um looked after their people, mm. and yeah. Whenever I, I spoke would, to yeah, I think it would be obvious. I think it would be obvious if, like, if it was atrocious working conditions, right? Yeah. Like that's that's typically the story that you hear. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Just and then really um, lucky to work with as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, the sample room. So I I've heard about sample rooms. So it it was how how does that work exactly? So you as the designer could literally bring your design there and and ask them to make it like in a day, like, and you would have a new sample. Yep. So the seamstresses that worked in the sample room were chosen because they could work on um, multiple machines Mm -hmm. because some seamstresses are only trained for like one, maybe two machines, and that's what they work on all day. So if you have a seamstress that can work multiple machines or can learn fast or, um, you know, shows initiative of how to get around problems and that kind of thing, they were pulled off the floor and brought into the sample room. So you would you would almost create like a mini tech pack for them. So you would say, okay, here's the pattern, whether it was um, an existing pattern or one that you had altered, whether it just be you've changed the fabric, so you've had to change grain lines or you've added lace or that kind of stuff. Um, they always had um, existing kind of tech pack documents for existing styles, which was really nice. So that you could you could print those off, and they would have. Um, sort of something to go on for the sewing sequence as well as any additional fabrics that they needed to pull to create. So like if I was bringing in a new fabric, I would give them the new fabric, but then they would pull elast- existing elastics, trims, um, hook and eyes, you know, those kinds of things. Um, there would be a cutter there. They would cut out 
Um, sometimes I would do the cutting myself if they were busy or if it was a bit finickety or, you know, you needed to do a particular placement or something like that. Um, so you, it was really a nice way of um, kind of testing your tech pack so that by the time you pass that on to the other departments, it was actually, it was really well existing and kind of been trialed out a few times, which was yeah. really nice. And yeah, you just give it to the sample room. They would slot it into their workload. Um, they had most machines in at least one of each in the sample room. Um, if they didn't, like if there was only one of them in the factory, they would obviously, they would go out and use that. Um, and yeah, they, then they would, you know, if there was a problem, they'd come and talk to you and we'd figure a way around it or, you know, scrap that and bring something else in. Um, and yeah, you would get a garment at the end of, maybe not necessarily the end of the day, but yeah. um, but you would get a garment. Rather uh, quickly, was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then those garments were used in sort of marketing um, and directors meetings so that they could see product. Um, eventually, at the end of the season, we would make marketing samples, which would then actually go to the retailers, and they would have products that they would be able to photograph or put on, you know, put on a model. And those are coming out of the sample room? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, okay. so they did. They they that sample room turned out a lot of garments. Like, yeah. um, so towards the beginning, um, you know, as a designer, you're always working on probably three seasons. So you're working with um, the new season, so it's the new trends and the development of that garment. Um, then you've the previous season's garments. You've already handed over the tech pack, and it's with the technical team, or you know. Um, perfecting patterns, checking the tech packs, um, grading um, and fitting because they used to do a lot of fittings, which was which was a really interesting process as well. And then there would also be <clears throat> sort of two seasons ago garments that were now on the factory floor. Sometimes they hit problems and then you would have to deal with that in some way, shape or form. So you're always dealing with um, three seasons. So at the beginning of the season, they would make concept samples. And then towards the end of the um, season, the sample room were making more um, like marketing samples. And that would be like, say, 10 garments of each style that was going to be sold at the, for the season. So, yeah, they um, <laughs> that sample room turned out a lot of samples. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed. I, I got a lot of satisfaction <laughs> hearing about that process and, and, and the way that it's organized. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I wrote down, I wrote down, there's new season, there's tech pack season, and then there's factory floor season. <laughs> and yeah, um, pretty much, pretty yeah. much. Um, I guess I, I'm interested in knowing, you, you explained it so well. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it, so the, the garment gets, or like, let's say there's 10 new underwear, there's 10 new underwear styles that you're going to be launching. Um, how far out is the new season? Um, they used to work... I'm trying to think. It was about 18 months. Yeah, it was about 18 months, 18 months to two years. So okay, obviously interesting. Different. Yeah. So that's like a garment, like an underwear. <laughs> this is so interesting because we never think about it, right? But like an underwear can take like two years to, to go from concept from your brain to like a final end garment that you can go buy yep. in, in the store. Yeah, yep. two years is a good. Um, and some products even longer than that. Um. You know, like when we were launching 
when we were launching our own molded bras. So we started, we would bring the foam cups in and then so we started just with molding the fabric. And that is, that's trial and error. And so to that changeover from an imported product to a product that we made um, could, could have taken two two or plus years mm. just because you're now running new machinery. You've got to train seamstresses and um, cutting room people and molding and, and, and all of those. So the more the more advanced the, the product, the more development time there is in it. Mm. Um, and sometimes... Sometimes that development is happening in the background. Other times we, sh- you know, you shout about it to for marketing reasons. Um, so yeah, it just it just depends on on the garment itself. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Like a like a new yeah. underwear, complicated style underwire, com- complicated style would take a lot yeah. longer to develop. And they, I mean, fact. they didn't just do ladies' wear; they did men's wear and mm. they did sportswear as well. Hmm. so was there different departments for all those things or was that like the same like was it the same team running all of those um so within the design department you would have a designer that was in charge of each brand um and then there was there was always a junior designer or somebody assisting um or somebody that was doing what they call private label so uh retail because we were a manufacturing uh a factory um some brands used to come to us for manufacture and it just it, you know when you're running a factory whether you're running the factory for 500 garments or whether you're running for a thousand garments you know you still kind of have the same overheads so even if you're producing for your your competitors theoretically it just means that your factory costs are lower if you just keep your manufacturing going all the time um I mean, they, they, it wasn't a 24-hour um, thing at all, but it was probably at least six, sometimes seven days a week. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so there was definitely a designer for each brand and then, um, you know, assistance and, and that kind of stuff. So within the R&D department, research and development, there was us designers, we had a costing team. So um, once you'd once you had a concept sample, you would hand it over to the costing team, and they would work to cost the garment in in the most incredible ways. Like know, a whole team, a whole team of people. Yeah, to do a, whole, this, right? a whole team of, to do costing. I mean, they used to do work study. Um, you know, they literally used to go onto the floor and time how long a garment used to take, how long saw, each process. I saw a LinkedIn take. post about that. Somebody like they were they were specking a garment. <laughs> They like did it really fast and they packed this whole garment like 30 seconds. Yeah. So like every process, it takes this long and you're using this much elastic, but actually you're wasting that much because just, you know, in okay. process, you don't ever use the same amount of elastic that's on the actual garment. Hmm. Um, they um, also in R&D, they had the technical department. So that was pattern makers, graders. Um, and there was always somebody that sort of, did sampling fabrics and dyeing of fabrics and all of that kind of stuff mm. as well. And then the sample room were also included in um, research and development. Okay. Okay. So all of this to say that you gained a whole like depth and breadth of experience in the industry yeah. across like multifaceted areas of, of, of underwear garment production. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's cool. So, so that's, I was very blessed for that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, and you left that to have kids at some point. It was that. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, we, um, I mean, it, it was a full time. It was obviously a full time job, um, and there were overseas trips involved. Um, mm. Like everybody is always like, "Oh, that's a nice perk." Mm. Uh, overseas trips to go and um, go to attend fairs, so like um, lingerie fairs, so like the um, interfilia, right? Interfilia and curve and those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, so I did a couple of those. We um, and then when we went on those trips, we would um, go and see what was happening in the market. Um, often, if we went to Europe, we would go to um, the DB Apparel head offices because we used to import some of their like products as well. So like the like the highly technical Wonderbra products, there was no ways we could manufacture. We would import from them. So we always had a good relationship with our um, other sort of offices from around the world um and where if, if we went if we went anywhere near we would always go and see those but we did we did the shanghai um fair we you know like i went to hong kong shanghai i went to new york oh was is there one in shanghai that's like uh like popular like interfiliere and curve is there one yeah yeah it's yeah. um gosh i can't remember what, what the name of it was but it was massive like it was okay. a three-day fair and we were yeah. there from eight in the morning until eight o'clock at night yeah I've never. Yeah. I promise you, I didn't get to all of them. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've never. I've never been to one. I've just like whenever they come around, I I look, <laughs> I check out the websites, and they look like they need a lot of energy, like a <laughs> lot of energy. There's so many brands exhibiting, so many. Like even just like when I go and look at the Curve website, and then I look at all the brands that are are going to be there. It's like I've spent hours just <laughs> just looking at the brands, and like I'm not even like at the event. And those sort of fairs are always split into two. So you have like the um, the section where there'll be garments. So you go as like a buyer to be able to then buy those garments and bring it like into your store. And then you always have the producers or the, um, you know, the the factories, the lace manufacturers, the trim manufacturers. So we were always in that side. Mm. Um, but it does mean that when you go onto these stands, they're like, oh, you can order some sampling. And then you've got to stand in the rack and mm. go through like, literally hundreds of laces and choose what you want so that you can order sampling you know if it's a new company you've got to talk to them about you know a working relationship see if you'll be able to meet their minimums and um, those kinds of things so like as a as a design you were always you were also involved in the negotiating Mm -hmm. of you know of new new laces new new companies whether you can meet their minimums, arranging, sampling, that kind of stuff as well. Was it easy so. for you guys to meet minimums? Like uh, DB Apparel would have been a pretty big um, manufacturer. Um, right? it, I mean, it was. I mean, we, we used to, we would meet some of them. It really depended on, on the factory. So mm. sometimes you had to do heavy, heavy negotiations mm. to bring them down. Um, some of the factories will say, okay, we can do a, a lower minimum, but then your price is higher. Um, or, um, I mean, we did we did develop laces. So, and when you develop a lace, that's like often 50 or <laughs> 100,000 meter minimums. Mm, um, yeah, we, we had, um, I had Harrison Tatum Wyatt on the podcast from yeah high lease and um it was that was an interesting podcast but yeah it's interesting so so companies like yours like like db apparel would be working with companies like 
tin high to develop yeah. new laces for your products? Yeah, we used to, uh, we would get existing laces. Um, so obviously, if you're running a, if it's a fashion range, you're not going to go and develop a lace because you're not going to be running ten thousand meters. Mm-hmm. Um, whether so, you would choose an existing lace because then they they've either got stock or they're already running it, so the the minimums are lower. Um, whereas if it was going to be something like on a um, what we would call a basic product that would, would run over, you know, three or four seasons then you could meet the minimum but within different color lots so it really just depended on what the product was whether you would meet minimums or whether you would um bring it in but yeah we actually used to um ten how was one of our um suppliers <laughs> that's why i listened to the the podcast so eagerly <laughs> oh, okay nice cool kind of hear from, the, kind of yeah. hear from you know, that, those sorts of companies again Okay, so the reason why um, a brand might create their own unique lace would be because like it would be now representative of of their brand and something that they could run for a long period of time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I I did a couple of um, lace developments. Um, Like you got to do the actual like, like design of the lace? Yeah, so I mean, I, now that you know a little bit about what happens in the lace design world from uh, from Ten High and um, Ashika as well, Chia yeah, mm-hmm. as well. Um, so you can kind of use. Uh, we always work through an agent for those kinds of lace companies. So you would email the agent and say, "Okay, we like this lace, but we're having a problem with that. It's not a two way lace, or um, this element here doesn't work for us." And so you could say you could. So it was we would propose changes and then they would come back to us and say, okay, we can do this, this, and this, we can't do that. And then you would land in a place that was um, beneficial. Uh, um, often it was, okay, we found this lace trim of yours, but this we want to now make it into a galoon or you've got an existing galoon that's narrower. We want to make it wider because our size range is bigger. Um, so that kind of development, okay. um, I did a couple of embroidery developments as well. That's um, that's a little bit easier um, because of the dif- because of the the different methods. Right, you're not restricted lace. to the lace making machines. Embroidery, you can make whatever yeah. design, just like yeah. it's embroidered on. Okay, but yeah, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So like it, that was always really nice as well to be able to get into those kinds of areas and and kind of figure that out and yeah. um, learn about all that as well. Yeah. Um, a common theme, as I'm sure you've heard on the podcast, is is problem solving. Like we, if you are like interested in what like the technical aspect of of pattern yeah. development at all, like problem solving is a big part of it. Yeah. And that sounds like a really fun problem to solve. Like what kind of yeah lace? yeah. Well, how how yeah. am I going to make this lace work for this design? Yeah, yeah. So um, in South Africa, um, they have a lot of the the. A lot of the population is big backs, small cups. Mm. Um, but obvious, but I mean, like, but it goes to large sizes. Mm-hmm. So your cups are still re- quite large. And so often we would find laces that we just needed to widen as a galoon. Mm. Um, because so that was probably the thing we kind of came across the most. Um, but yeah, it was good. It was so, yeah. So what with, with the fairs, you would, you would often go and have a chat to the, the um you know the suppliers about that kind of stuff everything was email obviously um 
but the fa- the fairs are lovely to go to, but they are exhausting. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> and what's coming from South Africa? I feel like you've got to travel so far myself. to get there. Yeah, that's same from Canada. Like, the, the, well, there's there's a uh, Curve New York, which would be the closest one for me. But like, yeah, they're all so far away, and just like, just like the energy to get there would be so much, and then like being there, like you know, I I have yeah. to like rest. I feel like for a week before and a week after, <laughs> there had to be like recovery time built in to it yeah that no they were I mean your feet take an absolute hammering you're on your feet for like I mean most of the fairs are about are about three days Mm -hmm. and you are there from the minute they open the doors and you know you're there you've got to (laughs) you know you've got to get in as much as you can make the most of it yeah gotta make the most of it and then we would always combine those trips with um you know scouting the market so what was seeing what was happening in the market in different countries Mm. and of course that is going from <laughs> retailer to retailer yeah does that just mean shopping that's just like you just got to go shopping <laughs> it was the time I did the most shopping ever in my life I think it's why I don't shop now I'm like, yeah yeah do you were you buying a lot of samples from those retailers as well to like keep them as as references yeah yeah we did we would buy samples um we were also just looking for sort of general trends as well mm. I mean we always used to work with uh the concept trend magazine um, like at the beginning of the season to see what trends were coming in and then you would have to relate it to the South African market. Do you mean do you mean um, the Concepts Paris one? Like the one yes. oh, okay. So uh, this is what this like that that's a very expensive magazine. It's hard to like, <laughs> access. But and I was wondering if like so it's big companies, like it's the the big enterprises that are that are you know you definitely wouldn't be buying that as a freelancer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like seven hundred dollars for like one magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're always beautiful, beautiful magazines. Beautiful, like, you'd like, yeah. get lost in them, and just all the references that they use. I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a nerd like that. When I find, like, if they mention like, uh, like an artist that they like is coming in for the season or whatever, like, I'll go and research. So get lost in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's very beautiful. Got- it has a very like deep like like comes from the soul <laughs> I feel like there's there's people like pouring that it's art it really is yeah no I mean the the just the the trends side of the industry is I always find so super fascinating we did a history of fashion at um at university and it was always a really really interesting subject like how trends have come and gone but they always get reinterpreted in some kind of new way and yeah. um, it's just really interesting like the psychology behind it and stuff like that. Mm. especially like with intimate apparel patterns I mean they're they're so small there's only like <laughs> so many ways they can go together right but it's like we're just it's yeah. it's human nature that we can recreate like things that have already been done like we can continue to make new things and this is um we get philosophical about yeah. AI here but like you know um the topic of like artificial intelligence starting to like what impact it's going to have on the world I I always come back to the fact like we are going to figure out how to make new problems for ourselves to solve we're just going (laughs) to use it in a way to figure out like new things like I think like I'm very optimistic about it and oh yeah we'll always find something to fill our time with I mean all the conveniences we have but um we you know there's always something else to do right yeah yeah exactly (laughs) Yeah, so after I, after I left um, DB Apparel, I left um, mainly because um, I fell pregnant with my first daughter and just um, I didn't want to be working a full-time job, leaving her super early, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, getting home late, all those right. kinds of things. Yeah. And I imagine um, the maternity leave in South Africa, like I like I'm su- in Canada, we're super privileged. It's like a year you get a year of maternity, wow. which is like one of the best in the world. And um, even that I found like when I went back after a year, like, you were not was, ready. It was hard. Yeah, you're not ready. Like I didn't feel ready. Some some women can like do it, and they're they're like everybody's different, right? In terms of yeah. what they what their needs are. But um, so so I definitely empathize. Um, you so you yeah. got pregnant and you didn't. I I just understand that like like I was the same way. Like I didn't want to give my whole life to work when I after I had my son. Yeah, yeah. No, it just it. It just didn't. It just didn't appeal to me. Um, I was brought up by parents having their own businesses, so to me, that were you know, being at home with kids and working around them to me was completely, completely normal. Mm. Um, so I did um, mainly bridal and evening wear to begin with because it's um, you know, it's it's an easy, it's a very close um industry to the lingerie because it's all co- contour, so it's all body fitting and that mm. kind of stuff. Yeah, a lot of the fabrics are. Not similar, but they're finicky. They um, require a little bit more special processing and mm. right because you would have been working with stretch fabrics a lot when you were working at the fab at the factory, and so now when you're going into yeah. bridal and more structural, inter- intimate wear, you've now switched the type of fabrics that you use. But it's the same concept, right? Like when you're yeah. fitting a garment, harder, yeah, so- harder when you're using stable fabrics. But yeah, so I just um, did evening gowns and bridal wear. Um, eventually when my second daughter came along, I actually got a, um, um, a, like a consulting job or a, we would call it freelancing now. Um, but I was on a retainer for, mm. <coughs> excuse me. Um, so, and this was where I went to, into the factories to help them set up for bra making. Mm. Um, and I'd ran the two concurrently. So it was really nice to be you know, seeing clients and doing bridal wear, but then also still being in the lingerie industry. Um, <clears throat> and I suppose that was kind of the basis of figuring out how to freelance, how to mm-hmm. split your time between different clients and, um, you know, fitting in with whatever systems they had to be able to deliver their information, what have you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. Um so how what did that transition look like for you after you so there was a baby involved and there was like leaving that job and then freelancing like what was that what was the trend what did that transition look like um I think it came pretty naturally actually it just um I think you just make things work yeah yeah (laughs) I always had um in South Africa we were blessed with a very large home and I had a lovely lovely studio area I was also my mom used to come and help out so when babies are small, they sleep a lot and they don't mm-hmm. kind of go to many places. Yeah, mom help is the best. Yeah. And as my first daughter grew, my mom would come and help out and take her out for the day so that I could see clients or I would fill up my Saturdays with fittings and my husband would, would take the kiddies. So um, I think because I had two parents that had owned their own business, to me, the shuffle, the you know, doing the kids, doing the business, working at night when the kids were asleep. Like to me, that was, that was normal. So Mm -hmm. um, that transition, I think for me was a lot easier than possibly for anybody else. Mm -hmm. And, um, and what exactly was, who were your clients? Were they, 
um, individuals like looking for bridal wear or was it like there were individuals looking for bridal? Okay, cool. Yeah, so, so it would be brides, like, they would often bring their bridesmaids or the mother, okay. mother or the mother-in-law okay. or yeah. that kind of stuff. Uh, I did some casual wear as well. Often if you'd done like something for a client, then they would come back to you and say, oh, well, can you, can you make, I'm going to a wedding. Can you now make a dress there? Or, oh, I have this idea for a summer dress. Can you make mm-hmm. that? Um, um, and it, it it's amazing how word of mouth mm. spreads. Mm-hmm. Um, I think particularly for sewing nowadays, because it's not a not a skill that a lot of like people have so much anymore. Mm-hmm. When you know somebody that does it, you're quite happy to then share that information with anybody else that's looking. Mm-hmm. And I've always just found that, like I put in the I put in the hard yards, like when we started here in New Zealand. Um, you know, going on to social media, like Facebook groups and just, you know, if anybody inquires, just put your name up or, you, you know what I mean? Like you do that kind of stuff and it starts to steamroll and as you get to know people, it just, yeah, yeah I get, I get found, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is really yeah. lovely. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, and then what did the transition look like going from South Africa to New Zealand? Was it hard? That was to- rough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and was that? Did that happen during COVID times? No, it happened. Uh, we emigrated 2017. Okay, um, so just so end of 2017. Okay. Yeah, immigration is um, definitely not for the faint of heart. Mm. Um, it's starting from the beginning on absolutely everything. Um, you know, even just going into the store and you don't know the products. Like you're now trying to choose something for dinner and you're like, uh, I don't know what these products are. <laughs> like just something as simple as that can be really overwhelming. Um, I took 18 months off um, to help the family settle, take the kids to play groups, you know, get them some friends, get us some friends um, and just and just be really present with them, which was really nice. And I think it helped our family overall transition really well. Mm. Um I had a brother here in New Zealand, um, so at least we had some family, and then my sister actually eventually joined us as well. Okay. So we actually, I do, I'm very blessed to now have some family here for support and babysitting. And <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And stuff like that, um, and we all live in the same city, so which is which is even better. Hmm. Um, and yeah, then I just started with, um, I just started offering uh, alterations because always needing alterations mm-hmm. and then once again it it just grew from there I did alterations and then I started doing casual wear and then I did some bridal wear and then <clears throat> I was actually contacted by um, a bridal wear designer here in New Zealand um, and she was looking for a pattern maker and so now I make um, her custom bridal patterns so when she has custom garments um, or clients she does the sketch and she sends me measurements I do all the patterns. Um, I make up a mock-up garment or a first fitting garment. She does the fittings, and then, like, if there's any adjustments, she'll just send them back to me or adjust, and then she makes the final gown. Oh, that's super so, cool! This I'm super interested to talk about. So, um, <laughs> like, so okay, that's cool. So you get a sketch, and she sends you the measurements. There's probably like a gazillion like measurements, and then you you translate that into your initial block pattern. So everybody, so every time you get a new, so every time you get a new garment, are you making a block pattern based on specs or do you go straight to, you have block patterns already and then you modify? No, I have, I have block patterns. I mean, I know how to draft. We did drafting at university. 
I find it quicker to work. I know my blocks well enough that by looking at a client's measurements and photographs, I always ask for photographs because there are some things that you can't see from a measurement chart. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like if posture. they've got a slightly, yeah, like posture, rounded shoulders or prominent um, shoulder blades, or you know, something like that, where you can pick more of that up from a photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, so it's I, I work from block. Um, every now and then I have had to draft because it's been like, um, so, so so like I have a size 10 block, a size 16 block and a size 20 block. Okay. Um, if they're, if they are way outside of those, like if I feel the adjustments are not going to translate well enough, then I'll draft. Mm-hmm. But um, that's very, it's actually very rare. I tend to draft blocks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I'll just draft another bigger size block or I'll, like if I find, okay, I tend to be doing this a lot this season and I'll draft a block for, for that rather than draft for individual clients. Uh, for me, it's faster. Mm-hmm. But I know okay. everybody works differently. Okay. Okay. And then so once you have your pattern, you create your initial sample. Is that done in like just muslin? <clears throat> um, it, we started off doing muslin or calico, um, different things. Um, but what we find in the bridal industry is, um, you know, sometimes your fabrics just, they don't they don't translate well or they don't move well from a muslin to, to you know, to a particularly type of satin or a tulle or that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we will in general just use a cheaper version of the final fabric mm-hmm. um, where we can. Um, you know, particularly for things like draping and stuff, um, I find that draping in a very soft, fluid satin is very different to yeah. using a, a muslin or a calico. So uh, I would rather do it in a fabric like that. Mm-hmm. And quite honestly, sometimes calico or muslin is so much, it's so expensive that if you just, mm. you can find a cheaper version of the kind of like a satin or whatever that you're looking for anyway. So, yeah. Just something and then the client gets a better idea. Properties. Yeah, then at least the client gets a better idea of what the mm-hmm. garment is going to be doing. Um, so, yeah, so we find it better to work that way. Okay, and then are you there at the fittings when the client tries it on for the first time? No, in general not. Mm-hmm. Um, they do all the fittings. I have I've have had so, so there's sometimes they're more complicated dresses or they can't figure out how to fit, the, um, how to solve the fitting issue. Okay. And or sometimes you've got a um so I have gone in for a couple of fits, but in general not. She does the fittings, um, takes photos, set, and then sends the garments back all pinned and what have you, and then I just make adjustments um on the on the pattern from there. Okay. Um and then and then how does the final garment get made? Did you did we talk about that? Um so once um depending on the garment, there'll be one to three fittings. We really try not to go over one to three fittings for a for like a um for a mock up. And once it's gotten to a stage where it's like probably ninety five percent correct, then that's where my process ends, and I invoice her for my hours, and then she um she cuts cuts and sews the final garment. Oh, she and does. then I just see okay. the pictures a couple of months later, and it's like, oh yeah, look at that. Okay, <laughs> that's super interesting. I love that. Yeah. Okay, so that's cool, and you're doing everything by hand right now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So because it's all custom, um, I want to get into like computerized patterns and 3D and that kind of stuff. At, at the moment, because it's all custom, it's um, 
it's just faster for me to do it manually. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, then <laughs> as you've just learned with Chloe, the the hours that you've got to spend just teaching yourself to do all of that is um, yeah. it's an know, investment. Just it's an yeah. investment. You have to take the yeah. time, and then that yeah. means time that you're not doing other things that could be profitable. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's um. I mean, it's just a it's a, it's just a balancing act at the moment. Yeah. Um, and then um, I have my um my own lingerie clients as well, which I freelance for. Also, just making coming up, we're helping them with the design process and then putting out a concept sample for them. We do some sort of fitting as well, whether, whether I do it or they do it, it just depends where where they are in the world or um, most of them have been here locally based New Zealand um, and then get it ready to manufacture. Okay. Are those more like new startups? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Most of them are small startup brands. So they've found a found a missing link in you know through experience of what they think is needed in the market okay and for them too you do everything everything's done by hand okay and then so yeah, how, if, how do the pat- patterns get transferred like if they're i get they're all local they're mostly local to you so you can literally like physically yeah like, we did uh, yeah i deal a lot online um or postage um so if i need um if i need patterns to be dig- digitized there's a company here in new zealand which i just send the patterns to and they just digitize them mm. um scan, and like then you would so- scan the pattern or how would you get it to- or you would send them the actual physical pattern yeah so you say se- you so you send them the physical pattern and they then i think use gerber or Electra or whatever to they literally can trace it out and then it puts it into a 3d pattern okay. uh, not a 3d pattern uh, a uh, in, into a pattern making software okay so, yeah, a lot of a lot of the problems that I'm now having is manufacture. <laughs> so, a lot of the small startups don't want to don't want to manufacture overseas because it's getting too expensive and freight is atrocious and all of those kinds of things. Um, and so, I'm actually busy working with a lot of small um, sort of CMTs to try and get them to manufacture lingerie okay that's in so in that, new zealand there's little like new zealand, yeah. cmt is cut make trim i think cut make trim yeah yeah so there's so, small uh, factories that will kind of do what you do they'll make samples um so, do, that's, so all, you... that, that's all quite new because um yeah a lot of people want to make hair in new zealand locally but the industry has has also you know over the years because people have been importing mm-hmm. <laughs> The industry has died out so now to try and yeah. find people that are skilled or are willing to learn the skills and stuff is yeah it's it's my current <laughs> challenge at the moment oh, okay. um so so yeah it's 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 interesting it's, it's good it keeps the it, it keeps you um, interested in trying to find new ways to do things is that problem solving thing again <laughs> yeah yeah we love it right <laughs> i'll tell you where my mind is going um so with so with your clients that you get like photographs for so that you can create garments for them we're not here yet in the industry but what i see happening is that one day like these little boutiques will have body scanners so your client can go in get a body scan and then you could be working on a pattern for that client using their actual body in 3d and creating like a garment sample that you could do in 3d and then like present that to them before you ever like have to draft a pat like ever have to like 
like cut out paper and and fabric yeah. and, and sew it all together I mean it's I mean before I discovered um like what you do and what Sophia do and you know that whole side of thing that's is quite new like you guys have introduced me to that yeah that's um, cool you know when you don't work in big industry you you do miss out on a lot of the parts of development that you know unless you're really heavily there you're not going to know about and that's the one thing I love about the technical collective is you hear all that kind of industry stuff mm. without having to go to fairs and yeah. you know all of that kind of stuff so it's really really fantastic for us freelancers to be exposed to all of that um and it is definitely an area that I've been looking at and thinking that's you know if I could literally get now partner up with somebody I could then start offering okay well I can do you a 3d mm-hmm. version now so that's all like now something that is like as I've now opened my mind to and go oh actually maybe I don't actually have to be making the samples myself yeah, cool. um, and can just get in with somebody so I can still all do do all the pattern work yeah um and the conceptualization and then just hand it over for a sort of a into a 3d format so yeah, so that's pretty exciting and would be quite a nice step to be able to offer. So um, yeah, so, that's yeah, super sorry. interesting. <laughs> like I, I love I love hearing you say that because like a little while ago, <laughs> like I'm always asking questions about like how are we doing things in 3D? Like how are how are we in this industry in the intimate apparel industry doing things in 3D? And most people are like crickets. Like we're not talking about that yet. <laughs> like we're not doing things in 3D because it's hard. Like there's lots of reasons why we're not. Um, and I think after hearing your story, I have a little bit more perspective on like it's big and there's a lot of moving parts and it already like it's already established. The way it's done is already established. So like trying just to introduce- move it. No, but it's just I think, you know, I can't obviously speak for big companies because I'm no longer in one. Mm. Um so I'm not sure if they are using the technology. It would be really interesting to get you know to get to know that um but I think it's I think it could just be a you know instead of making a million one samples you can now do a 3d representation and Mm. say okay you literally can get a yay or an a before you know I think there will probably still be a call for um actual samples somewhere along the way Uh, for a long like if we ever get to not having physical samples like that's we're a long long ways off from there for sure like like I, I think 3D saves you one or two yeah. samples. Yeah. yeah. I think, but I mean, like I think about, um, you know, ideas that we used to present at marketing and there were a lot of things that weren't selected mm-hmm. and you could bring that, that 3D process into that. Yeah. And then they say, okay, we like the idea of these, these and these. And then you could pr- produce actual garments mm-hmm. uh, and you would just cut down a whole lot of, unnecessariness um or, you know or for you know trialing out you know you like a particular lace yeah Try exactly design, what is it sell the like? design in the 3d yeah. format first exactly then get in we can look product. at what it looks like with these style lines and what does it look like if it has a lower neckline or what does it look like if we like rotate the lace and like make the pattern yeah. you know in a, a go the grain line go a different direction so um it's yeah. cool yeah and um so so yeah. when I discovered it I was like why isn't the whole like why isn't everybody using this already like what like what is going on but um I think a lot I'm learning a lot through the podcast uh, in terms of like it's it's new it's not a process that people have used in the past and um it's it's coming and there are like um triumph I know is using 
They're using oh, okay. Yeah, there's an article. I, I can link it. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, There was a whole magazine that was published last year about how the intimate apparel industry is starting to use um 3D processes and Triumph was one of them. They they um they just developed like a whole team last year to oh, wow. start creating 3D processes. And um the other big one is um Hypercurve, which is read led by Rosa Rosa Kramer. She's in our okay. she's in the collective and um she's doing she's she's been doing that she's been doing it for like 10 years. Like she she had this vision a long wow. time and she's been yeah her um Hypercurve is doing like her her 3D designs are really beautiful. Like she has a whole team behind her, but oh wow, nice. Yeah, I think there's definitely a call for it. Um and I think depending on on the company, how how open they are to new processes and things, I think will determine how much uptake it take it it gets. Mm-hmm. Um, but it will eventually it will eventually get in there. Do you do grading as well? <clears throat> I do do grading. I will say it's not my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think because like a lot of people, I'm still in that phase where I just want, I just want the rules and I just want it to work. Yeah. But it doesn't work like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's still a lot of you just kind of got to make it your own and figure out your style and stuff. And because I don't do it um, as often as like say patterns or whatever, then. Um, so then I just, you know, you don't get the practice and the expertise. But I, I like, I do do grading, um, but it's, yeah. <laughs> it's certainly my, my most, my fastest skill. Mm. Yeah, that's that's one thing um, in particular I found. Probably any 2D design software would speed up significantly. You must have used yeah. it. Did you use Gerber before? Yeah, I did do, um, we did do Gerber and Lectra training. Mm. But um because once again we were at the beginning of the process, it was faster just to take an existing pattern and manually change it rather than uh, we didn't have the software like on our computers. Okay. That was all the technical team, so it would then require that I got somebody to do it for me. Okay. Um. So it was just easier to just, <laughs> just manually. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I was go- but I was gonna say, um, close three D is actually I've I've only recently learned this in like the past six months. It's really really good at doing grading yeah like, yeah I didn't really know how to do grading before and now like I can bring in a pattern grade it you know check the check to see if like the seam allowances or the seam lines yeah. line up the way that they're supposed to because what I've learned is that when you grade they always <laughs> you get like super screwed up and then you gotta like manipulate them so you can check them really quickly but then you can also do a a quick check on a physical body like not a physical body a a digital um representation of the body that you're grading for so like you can when I learned this I was like what other way like what other (laughs) what other (laughs) way is there to do this like like it's so much longer to to like do your grade and try it on a like yeah so you're like three different, like your smallest, largest samples and then try them on. Yeah, I would I would say probably 75% of your time of grading is spent checking yeah. <laughs> that everything matches up and lines up. Yeah, exactly. You adjustment fairly quickly, but then it's the checking. And then, then when it's the out, checking, you're like, yeah. oh, now where do I take it out of? Or where do I add it? Where yeah, do I exactly. It I can't out? change that seam. I can't change that seam. I can't change <laughs> that seam. So like, what, what do I do? Yeah. yeah yeah so it's so yeah it's um 
in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, that was super interesting. We are over, well, over an hour. It's always, <laughs> it always goes over an hour, but um, do oh, you well. have, okay, so um, I have my final two questions, but do you have any yes. last like comments, concerns, questions that you want to talk about before we get to them? No, I think we've pretty much covered sort of, sort of everything um in there I know I, I know I definitely learned a ton on this conversation um okay so my final two questions are what is your favorite part of um it's usually being a designer but I would say your main your main skill is pattern drafting you pick <laughs> what is your favorite part of your job and what is your least favorite part of your job um definitely pattern making pattern making is definitely um I, I think it's because I'm comfortable in that area um, I really also, um, now that I'm doing the freelancing, I really enjoy that discovery call, finding out about people's whys, why they want to develop the product and getting into translating where they are into an actual design. Um, and so I suppose that's, that's the design area of my life and then, and then putting that into a pattern. So those are, um, definitely my favorite parts. Um, Least favorite part, um, I know a lot of people say paperwork, but I'm actually okay with that because it's a necessary part. Um, and I do, I like to kind of keep track of my business stuff instead of outsourcing it because it's still because I'm quite small. Um, I can keep an, a tab on that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I It varies from day to day. Some days I'm more of an introvert and I don't want to see any people. <laughs> and other days I'm like, I've been in this house too long. I need to see some people. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't really have any least favorite parts. It's, I, I think I just view it as all part of the process. It's just the work. It's just part of the work and the work is good. Yeah. So hmm, I yeah. like that. So. I like that. <laughs> um, do you spend a lot of time with your clients on like <laughs> drilling down on their why, like why they want to create a product? And does that, that does that, um, inform the way that you create their designs um yes I I mean it's obviously it's always a question I ask and we do go into it quite heavily because it then um it then translates into what kind of features the underwear needs um or the gown or the even the bridal gown needs um you know things like if you're creating a niche garment that why will talk to the sizes that you need to run or how many products you need to run. So it is a very vital part. Um, and it also means that when we have difficult decisions or decisions that need to be made and they're sort of toing and froing as to which one to make, I'll always say to them, remember why you are doing this. If that is not fitting, you know, if the decision you're going to make is not in line with that, then you're starting to blur the lines of your mm. of your product and the reason and that kind of stuff. And I often find that that helps them keep on track and make decisions that will be in keeping with their original idea of the garment. Mm -hmm. I love that approach. It makes so much sense. And and you're yeah. right. Like that's goes back to the problem solving. Like when you have a problem solving <laughs> decision to make, like what what's our guideline to make to yeah. make this final decision? Like what are we basing it off of? Where's the, what information are we pulling to make this information? And when it's like, and it just you know when things get difficult or they come across something, you, if you just keep going back to that, 
you know, they, they'll start to say, oh, what about this and what about that? And you, if I know why they're doing something, then I'll say to them, you know, you created this product for a particular reason. This is now going outside of this. You know, let's focus back and yeah. um, find that very useful. Yeah. And do you find that clients, um, is, do you often get clients who don't have a solid why? Like they don't have a solid starting point. They're just like, I I know a lot of people are make garments because they can't find something that fits them like individually. Um, yeah, most um, most of my, most of them have um, a particular idea. Sometimes it's not, um, s- sometimes there's a, sometimes the reason is not the product. So they will say, okay, this is the problem I have found. And then we find a garment to fit, to, to cover that problem. Um, but in general, it is very specific. Like you know, um, one of the one of the brands I helped launch, she did a maternity, maternity breastfeeding bodysuit because she found that she was breastfeeding, but she didn't want to be pulling her top up to breastfeed this baby and now exposing her stomach. And she was like, well, what about a nice wearing a nice bodysuit? And you don't have to, you know, be exposing your stomach after you have had a baby and maybe not so confident. And so, um, you, you know what I mean? So sometimes it's, it's a problem and then they fix it with a garment or um, I do try and I'm very careful when people say, I can't find a bra that fits me because um, I've done bra fitting and I've been a bra fitter. <laughs> another whole area. We didn't get into that. <laughs> and it, there, there is always a garment to fit you. You just haven't found it yet. Hmm. You don't know what you're looking for, or you're trying the incorrect size, or like I mean, that's as you say, that's a whole fitted bra fitting is a whole nother podcast. Yeah. But, but so I try and I don't try and solve. But like I'll say them, okay, that's fine. I understand that. But then you have to have good fit guidelines. You have to have. A shop with fitters and those kinds of things and when they start to see that then the product changes um and they realize how much more education is involved and mm-hmm. so they go deeper into that on their websites and fitting guides and like you know they'll they'll cover that area in some other way but then still produce a garment mm. so yeah that <laughs> fitting is a <laughs> right so it could be like it, like they they clients might come to you with problems but they the garment that they have in mind to solve that problem doesn't always match what the problem is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you like, you like the, the biggest one is probably say, oh, I can't find a bra that fits. Yeah. And then, um, <laughs> and then we have a very long conversation about how bras are supposed to fit. And yeah, which is, yeah. Like you said a whole, how it's like, once I started this, the whole bra making journey, it was like, it was like probably a year after I was like, well, what, what exactly am I looking for in fit? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I'm like, I, like I'm, I'm like, oh, this bra fits, but then yeah, I, I yeah, it's, it's quite a bit yeah. of, um, yeah. I always say that there, there, are, there is a bra that will fit you. There is a garment that's fit you and it's just, it, it's your mission to discover it. Mm. Um, and you've got to know what a good fitting bra looks and more importantly feels like mm-hmm. um and 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 then you can find then once you have that knowledge you can literally go into any shop and find something that'll fit you in some way shape or form mm-hmm. um and it's that's just education mm-hmm. so you don't have a website <laughs> or anything eh? it's like i um you have your mm-hmm. instagram page and a facebook page but yeah i've just got an instagram and a facebook um at this point in time um 
a website is it's one of those things <laughs> I need to get up yeah. and running. And, yeah. But it's also one of those things, you know, often as a small business, you want to do yourself and then exactly. Just, and then you, <laughs> you have to find the time to do that. And but you just want to work. So, <laughs> you know, how it goes. Is with, it's one of those things. If your business is working without it, then it's not it's not essential. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, essentially, all, all, all it would be all, all that I would be looking at is just essentially a landing page. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I've always got work to do. I've always got stuff on the go. So it's um. It's obviously not not that bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I'm yeah, using. Exactly. Well, Natalie, it was beautiful. I had such a good time talking to you. I'm so glad that we connected through the I Collective and through Instagram and interwebs <laughs> and, and the podcast. Yeah, and now the podcast. So this is amazing. Thank you for the podcast. It's you know for people in the industry. I think it's been something that's really really been needed. Um. And particularly as a freelancer, it's nice to um, listen to other people in the industry so that you don't feel so alone. Mm. (laughs) So thank you for the podcast and um, keep it up. And yeah. Well, maybe be collecting. Maybe I'll be sending you some work for some three D clothes from some yeah. of my time. <laughs> yes, anytime, anytime. Just talk to me about three D anytime, and I'm like, yeah, you, you'll get you'll get all kinds of time from me. <laughs> All right, Natalie, enjoy the rest of your day and I will enjoy my night and we will be connecting again soon, I'm sure. Awesome. Thank you very much, Trudy. All right. Take care. Bye.